This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations. Welcome, Malcolm. You got it almost right. American Jewish Organization. American Jewish Organization. There we Hello. go. So it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. It was a lot of words, so I figured if, if I got the majority of them right, I'm okay. Whoever gets it right gets my job, so I'm good. <laughs> well, then I definitely don't want to get it right, probably. Malcolm, thank you for joining us, and I certainly want to dive into the meaning behind all of those words and understand what your organization, this, this conference of presidents does do, and, and all of the activist work that you're engaged in. But to understand that a little bit better, I'd like to try to bring some context to it by first exploring your background and your personal biography. Uh, where did you grow up? How did you come to be involved in Jewish communal work and activism? And of course, ultimately, to the position that you're in today. Okay, so if we have a couple hours, I can regale you with the whole history, but I'll try and give you the abbreviated version uh, of it. Uh, I was born in Philadelphia. My parents were immigrants from Germany, both, uh, who escaped the Shoah. My father on the last boat from Holland and had already been arrested in 34 by the Nazis and lived in Switzerland where he taught in a one-room schoolhouse for Jewish children whose parents were already sending them to Switzerland to be safe in Salerina. And my mother was a nurse in the Jewish hospital in Frankfurt, which is where she met my father on an operating table when he came. <laughs> and she, she got out after Kristallnacht. And my father, as I said, they came to Philadelphia and I went to school in Philadelphia, the Yeshiva Philadelphia, Temple University. I did my doctoral work at the University of Pennsylvania where I taught and uh, was very involved all along in activist causes and political causes from the time I was 10 years old. Uh, I campaigned for certain political leaders and I snuck into the room of a presidential candidate and traveled with him for two days. Which candidate was that? Adlai Stevenson. Okay. When I was 11. And I was very involved in Soviet Jewry from the very beginning uh, of the cause. And I know that a lot of it and a lot of the course of my life was shaped by the Shoah, by the fact that I lost my grandparents, aunts, uncles, and many relatives uh, during the Holocaust. And I felt early on that Jews could not live at the sufferance of others, that Jews had to have control of their own fate. Abba even once said that in World War II, Jews had influence in many places, but power in none. And I believe that that was not a situation that we could allow to continue. I don't let the Shoah dominate me, but it motivates me. You know, my parents didn't really talk that much about it, but I learned a lot and recall as a small child learning about the fate of my grandparents, other relatives. So that was, that was part of it. And, and I have to say honestly that my life was really not in my hands. Everything happened to me. Obviously, I was very motivated. I, I am an activist. I was always very involved with Israel and pro-Israel causes on campus. Infiltrated neo-Nazi group as a teenager, did many other things. But I never looked for a job in my life. Every job happened to me. I was teaching at Penn, working at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, finishing my doctorate. And What was your doctorate in? International Relations. And I got a call asking me if I would come to work for the Jewish community in Philadelphia to do their international relations and intergroup and other things. And I agreed to do it first on an interim basis. And 
I was there for a couple of years when I got a call to come to New York to start the Soviet Jewry movement here in 1970. What does that mean to start the Soviet Jewry movement? Well, there had been obviously activities here in New York, but we had been very active in Philadelphia. In fact, the largest demonstration for Soviet Jewry, I think, in the country was in Philadelphia. On Simchat Torah, because the Jews gathered in Moscow, we did a corollary event in New York, but they were reorganizing the effort and they were creating the Greater New York Conference on Soviet Jewry, the National Conference, and I was asked to come and to develop this, one of the two parallel bodies, the Greater New York Conference on Soviet Jewry, which encompassed the whole New York area. And I know many people were very skeptical, and I know that uh, one person said, you know, don't worry, he's a young guy, and the young won't work with him, he's Zionist, the Zionist won't send it. He's orthodox, the orthodox won't work with him. Literally verbatim what he told the editor of a major paper. 10 years later, he was working for me. But, the, <laughs> but you know, there is skepticism. And I knew that being an orthodox Jew, yarmulke wearing Jew, I don't like the hyphenation. I really consider myself a Jew and I worked my whole career in umbrella organizations, not because it's easier, it clearly is not, but because I really believe in Klag Israel. I believe in the importance of the unity of the Jewish people, of Achdut. I work for it every day. I try to maintain it here at the conference where you have the entire spectrum of the Jewish world coming together. It's one of the few places where they still sit together and talk. And my whole career was oriented towards umbrella organizations. So Soviet Jewry movement, which was one of the purest expressions of achrayut, of responsibility for one another, that the Jewish community mobilized. And I think it is part of the outgrowth of Shoah, certainly to me, that this was the answer to never again. If we meant it, and it wasn't just a hollow phrase, that we would make sure that Jews would never be endangered and be alone, that we would do all we can, and that we had to develop the political muscle and clout to do it. Jewish power, I liken to a muscle. I say, if you exercise it right, you build it up. If you abuse it, you destroy it. And that's why I did my doctorate in international relations, political science, because I wanted to have the best credentials possible. I wanted to have the best education possible to prepare me for, for this. But again, I lucked into this position. I came here with nothing. There was no office. I had an assistant and a secretary, and from that burgeoned into the Greater New York Conference, a big Solidarity Day demonstrations, the first year 50,000, the second year 100,000, 150,000. It changed the whole nature of Jewish life in New York in, in many regards, building a sense of community, local operations that emerged often later as uh, local Jewish community councils, but grassroots, it was a real movement, not an organization, and it brought people of every stripe together to show that what we have in common far outweighs our differences and that people who never did anything that their whole lives an 85 year old man I remember brought me a five dollar bill to my office after solidarity they were here and he said to me I was born here I never did anything Jewish I was always ashamed and embarrassed he said I was so proud yesterday to be on Fifth Avenue and I want you to have this contribution and I tell people that Soviet Jews saved more of us than we saved of them so many of our youth so many others who became involved and came back to the Jewish people through the their involvement, and of course, vast numbers of non-Jews. When they saw us out front, joined us, we had doctors for Soviet Jewry, lawyers, blacks, Hispanic, everything for Soviet Jewry, and some most amazing demonstrations with people from every ethnicity joining in. It's a shame that people today don't know, especially young people don't know about how exciting, how dynamic those days were. People who literally devoted every free minute they had to this cause, and the result speaks for itself. I remember attending a a rally, I think, was it 1986 in D.C.? That was the culmination when the Soviet premier came to Washington and had the massive demonstration in Washington. In 1976, they created the Jewish Community Relations Council, which is the umbrella of the Jewish organizations in New York. 
This was the last major city to have one because it was New York, it was Sue Jenner's, people were afraid of Behemoth, the monster. And again, against a lot of odds, I was asked to serve as the executive and against a lot of opposition, we were able to develop it and it still exists today, of course. And we innovated many new programs, including the first trips for political officials to Israel. People who were unknowns like Giuliani and Dinkins and others, people of every ethnic group, every religious group. We started doing that and organized outside of that, the first pack with people giving $100 each, but winning in three races in that first year in the 70s. The first task force of missionaries and cults, the first to go to registration drive in the Jewish community, many other things that I'm proud of that we accomplished in those years. And then, of course, the rally against Arafat's appearance at the UN when 250,000 people came and the freedom of Syrian Jews working on behalf of endangered Jewish communities everywhere continued to be a critical part of the work. And then in 1986, my predecessor here died. I had been offered another position on the same day. So again, you see that it's by Sheridan on that day, two hours before they made me the offer of the other position. They did a quick search and interviewed many people. They offered it to me and I had to make an agonizing choice that literally hundreds and hundreds of people weighed in from the prime minister to Bob Chirevit to many others telling me which job to take. And I chose the conference and now we were 30 some years later. I guess it was the right choice. I guess I'll stay, but uh, and we, we built up the conference. It was at the time 14 or 18 organizations. Now we are 51. I believe in broad umbrella, but with standards and limits. And we focus on national and international issues. We don't do the domestic agenda, uh, but we work with every president, all the leaders of Congress, foreign leaders. I visit many Arab countries, European countries. I meet world leaders. I think we've developed a reputation of credibility of reliability and trust, which is very critical, and that the legitimacy of your case, the authenticity of your facts, the way you present them, those are all critical because if a leader feels that you didn't tell him the truth once, the second time he's not listening. You're out, yeah. And the other thing I don't do is I don't leak. We don't have a PR operation. What we do in terms of public relations is only when it serves a substantive purpose. We don't have an institutional development office or public relations uh, operations. Because I believe people should know you from what you do and not what you say you do. There's so much there to unpack, and I, and I want to come back to it. Just what do you think it was that inspired you at such a young age? It sounds like already from the age of 10, 11, you had this sort of activist streak. Was it simply a function of being a child of refugees, of survivors? I mean, there are thousands of, of such people. So what set you apart that really drove you? Was it an ethic that your parents invested in you? Was it something explicit in your home, just uh, something you absorbed? Well, it's clearly something I absorbed about. My parents were involved, uh, people in the community worked very hard. My mother was the teacher in the Siakov kindergarten, trained thousands and thousands of people. And I meet them all over the world who tell me that they are committed to the Jewish community because of that experience in kindergarten. So no one should ever underestimate it. My father was an engineer, but worked very hard to try to save their families and then built a family, which wasn't always a rational decision after what they all witnessed. But I have to tell you, honestly, I have thought about it many times about it is my orientation. You know, God gave me very few talents. I can't draw. I can't sing. I can't dance. I don't play an instrument. There's very few things I can do. But God gave me ability in these areas, in being able to assess things, to anticipate. People always remind me, you know, come up to me that I warned about the danger of Islamic fundamentalism in the late 80s and about Iran in the early 90s. And I tell them it's Judaism, and I think it's in our genes. It gives us a different approach to history. We don't just study some event in isolation and say at that corner at that time something took place. For us, it's about zechira, remembrance. 
It's about understanding the context. You have to know what leads to something and what flows from it. This is how recorders of history do it, Jewish history. You have to understand what is the dynamic force so that you can warn future generations, that you look back in order to look forward. Winston Churchill once said, the further back you look, the further ahead you will see. Our Chazal, our sages, said it a thousand years earlier. And our Chagim are not just geared to a ritual observance. They're meant to be experiential. We experience what previous generations went through. And if you read the Chumash right, you learn from our forefathers and foremothers, not just great success. You read their frailties, their challenges that they face, how they dealt with this, because we learned the lessons. So history for us is a way to prepare future generations to avoid the problems of the past, the trials and tribulations of the past. And you do that by learning the lessons of the past. So for me, the involvement in politics was just a natural thing. It's like kids, some kids listen to music. I, I was a baseball freak too, but, <laughs> but that not, not for many years, but, but politics always was my passion. And I think it was intended so that I could try and do. And I feel, honestly, people ask why, you know, after all these years, I work 18-hour days, I still run around the world, and I'm getting tired, aren't you thinking? And the truth is that I feel that this is my obligation, that God has given me many blessings. And he gave me the opportunity to do what I care about most. Most of my lay people have to work a regular job, and then only afterwards can they come and devote themselves to the things they really love, working for the Jewish people, Israel, whatever. So I have to show that I am worthy and continue to be worthy, because one day God will say, okay, your contract's up, you stop doing it. And I'm telling you that this has been true throughout my life, that I feel in some ways it was charmed. It wasn't always easy. I've met many difficult challenges and gone through very difficult times, but know that there was a direction, there was a direction in which I was headed. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you along that uh, storyline you, you mentioned having once infiltrated a neo-Nazi group. Uh, before I ask you about your current work, I just have to ask you to, to go into detail about that a little bit. I don't have to go. I won't go into great detail, but <laughs> my name is a German name. And being Malcolm Holmline has helped me a lot sometimes getting into traveling in Arab countries and other places because it doesn't, if it was Chaim Young. Chaim Schwartz, right. <laughs> I, obviously, my Hebrew name is Yitzchak, and I, people know me from camp, and Yeshiva is Yitzchak, but the world knew me as Malcolm. And because of that, I got approached once while on campus about joining an effort, and which turned out to be a neo-Nazi group, which we were able to gain a lot of information and expose, ultimately. And they were not only closed out of the campus, they were closed down completely. Incredible. So you're working now in for the last 30 some odd years at this conference. Explain for our listeners, what is the conference? You talk about an umbrella, a big tent. Is it something where any and every Jewish organization can kind of join? Is it sort of like an affinity group, a a trade union? Like what exactly is it? Maybe all of the above. (laughs) Um, The conference was formed in the mid 1950s, most say 55. At the instance of John Foster Dulles, who was then the Secretary of State, and at that time, it was four or five Jewish organizations. And he said to them, look, get your act together. I don't want to meet separately with you. And so they formed what informal group called the President's Club. And so they would go together to see the Secretary of State. In 1959, it was formalized as the Conference of Presidents. And at the time, I think, had 12 organizations. Its agenda always was the, the national and international issues. Sometimes they had different emphases. And it gets redirected by events. But it was always the association of presidents and organizations can apply to join if they meet certain criteria, meaning their focus, what their agenda is. There are groups that are purely philanthropic or just the fundraising do not qualify, but there are many organizations that were, you know, that are grandfathered in because they've been members for many years and perhaps today wouldn't make it, but they have a membership committee that reviews it and it's 
very broadly representative uh, committee representing all the sectors of our of the conference, and they come to consensus recommendations about organizations, and then they're presented to the full conference for a vote. And now you have to get two thirds or fifty five percent have to vote for the organization order enter, and the, and the members are very jealous about guarding the membership and not just open throwing the doors open and not to just give recognition to any organization. We believe it's a status that you afford them and organizations that may engage in activities that are considered unacceptable or proper, that they not be able to invoke the name of the conference and say, well, we're a major Jewish organization. We've joined and been admitted. So the conference today has spun off a number of organizations that we created, the Lawfare Project, America's Voices, which brings superstars and athletes and all sorts of important people, religious leaders to Israel. We have the Rethink Israel. We have a national task force on Iran, which includes about 60 organizations and a think tank in Washington group that, that meets. We have a task force on BDS. We have on anti-Semitism. We work on the UN. We met last week with Guterres, with the Secretary General. We work with the members of the UN. We work in outreach in Africa and the Gulf and Arab countries. I visit many often, and not just there, but also Central Asia, European leaders. We maintain contact with leaders around the world. The American Jewish community is respected. It is seen as a key in America, many of them by the very myths that they spread. And while we know that some of it is a myth, our job is to make it a legend. <laughs> community is relevant, is constructive. We don't promise things we can't deliver, but we try to deliver what we promise. And we try to be, we're not representatives of the government of Israel. We're not mediators between America and Israel. We represent an American Jewish constituency. We advocate their interests, their views. Sometimes we can show the multiplicity of views on an issue. The fact that you have one stop, one place where they can come to and speak to the American Jewish community. How do you manage such a diverse group? I mean, you're talking about organizations that literally are on opposite ends of the spectrum, theologically, perhaps politically, culturally, in many senses, <laughs> perhaps. How do you or do you manage such a constituency? And, and how do you ever arrive at a consensus on anything? I keep them united by giving them a common enemy, me. So, <laughs> You're the uh, martyr. <laughs> say that, that on 90% of the issues, we can find a common ground that what unites us far outweighs what divides us. The problem is that the emphasis is always on the issues where there are divisions, because nobody's interested in where we work together day in, day out. 51 organizations signed a letter to Secretary Tillerson to appoint a special envoy on uh, anti-Semitism. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you that every day there's something that we issue to letters to the or statements to the UN. Go, a delegation will go representing the whole conference and speak for them on these issues. But those things don't make news. What makes news is when. Jews are pitted against Jews or Jews against Israel. And our job is to try and find those those points of commonality and to identify them and build on them. And then once you show people that there really is a common position, it's a fundamental, the common denominator between them on, on even the most controversial issues and say, how do you expand them and build on it? And it doesn't mean that the extremes on the left or the right will always be happy with what we do, but we work on the basis of consensus, not unanimity. We're not looking for homogeneity. We're not telling everybody you all have to be the same. People have the right to issue their own statements and do what they want. But they recognize that in our unity is our strength and that the ability to show the common position and give expression to it. And it often enables organizations to say and stand behind it. And no organization today can deal with all the issues. It's impossible. We can't develop the expertise, the capacity to do it. But by coming together and sharing our efforts, 
so that when we go to the UN, it's very good if an organization has entree and can be there. But when you show them that here is the United Jewish community come, they pay a different attention to it. It's a very heartening message to hear that there are not only some, but really a plurality of issues on which we can come together and really work together. Um, what have you personally learned about leadership through this role? You're in this really unique leadership position, bridging so many types of people and organizations together. Are, are there translatable or exportable ideas about leadership that you have developed? Uh, many that I've learned and I've learned by my mistakes and others. I try to always be open-minded and to see what works and what doesn't work, but everybody brings unique qualities to their jobs and unique perspectives. And you can't expect everybody to be the same and to have the same outlook, the same way of going about the things. And God has given us each different talents, uh, energy, insight, knowledge, and people themselves have different priorities and agendas that all of those things affect leadership. But leadership to me means also that you're a good soldier. Clean up a conference room too, if it's necessary, and to do other things and grassroots work. I think that you have to not think of yourself as a leader. I think you have to keep perspective and, you know, your children, grandchildren, your wife, when you take out the garbage, keeps, you know, we're reminded <laughs> of the right perspective. Uh, too many leaders, you know, sell themselves on who they are, and then they lose touch with the people and their real responsibility. And I think there are many qualities that a leader should possess, and we learn it from Tanakh. You see what our own leadership in history, what they did. You have to have a haftalariacha kamochi, really have to love fellow Jew, your fellow human being in this case. And it's why we speak out for Yazidis or Christians in the Middle East or others, because it never again is to be meaningful. It means that we don't just apply it to ourselves, that we know a world that becomes intolerant of others will be intolerant of us as well. And we know that Jews are usually the barometer or the canary in the mind, and I'm frankly sick and tired of it. One of the things that motivates me is that I don't want any more Jewish memorials. We have enough. Everybody you know, can cry at, at, over dead Jews, but they don't seem to like living Jews and a living Jewish state. And the real test for me today, for those with whom we work, is will they stand up for the right of Israel not only to exist, I don't need their permission for Israel to exist, but to be vital and vibrant and stand with it and to stand with the Jewish people. And when they see a BDS movement, when they see anti-Semitism on the rise, the society isn't judged because they have haters. It's how do they respond to that? Right. So recently I spoke at the Kufai Christians United for Israel, 5,000 people, the most exciting, vibrant event I go to during the year. And frankly, I told them, if you don't want to bite me, I'm showing up anyway. <laughs> I've been able to speak there for many years and to hear 5,000 people expressing a love for Israel and the Jewish people that is really remarkable, not awesome. for conversionary purposes, but because they really believe and, and translate that belief into the, their actions, political actions, travel, everything. So we have many allies and many friends, but first the Jewish community and the one key element and that every leader has an obligation to strive, for, even subjugating their own egos and personal interests is for the achtos, the unity of the Jewish people, because every great miracle had only one precondition, and that was the unity of the Jewish people. From when we stood at Mount Sinai as one person with one heart, then God said, you're ready to get to the Torah, the Ten Commandments, to the rescue of Russian Jews and Ethiopian Jews and Syrian Jews and Yemeni Jews. When people put aside their differences and said, we have a common interest, a common goal, we're going to work at it. Thank God blessed us with great success in that regard. So what would you say is our greatest challenge nowadays? Is it, is it a fragmentation? Is it BDS? What do you see as like the signature challenge facing the Jewish people currently? I think unity is the biggest challenge. Unity between us and Israel, unity within the community. 
that we shouldn't put the emphasis on the hyphenation and those who seek to divide us should be held to account. Those who seek to exploit situations should be held to account. There are substantive issues from Iran to the threat of terrorism to the I can give you a dozen issues that we are working on, and some with real progress. All the predictions of Israel's isolation. You saw the Prime Minister of India. India, right. China there. You know, African countries, right? Well, you just take China, India, and Israel, and you have almost half the world's population. Not because of Israel. <laughs> we contribute to it, too. But, but the, if you look at what's happening in Africa, you look in South America, many places in the world, and people were saying Israel will be alone and isolated. They, they fight to come to Israel, and I get requests all the time from leaders in Africa wanting to visit Israel. And you see the change in some of the Arab world. It doesn't mean we take for granted. It doesn't mean it can't change tomorrow. We have to work at it constantly. We have to be vigilant. We have to be standing up to it. We have to make sure that we don't allow Iran to dictate Syria and dominate in Iraq and continue the Shiite crescent and their global terrorism support, Hamas, Hezbollah. We have real threats. But the real condition in order to confront those is that we are united as a people and stand together as one people, as one people with one heart. It doesn't mean we can't have differences. It means that we respect each other. We create the climate in which differences can be expressed, but focus on what we have in common and build on it. What's fascinating is that what you seem to be saying is that regardless of all of the, the myriad challenges that confront us from without, as long as we are stable and connected within, we have the strength and ability to confront those challenges, which is a sort of a, a powerful and also inspiring message because as long as we take care of keeping our own side of the street clean, so to speak, we can meet the challenges. The Torah says, Am Levadod Mishkon, nation that dwells alone. But if you put a comma in there, Am Levadod, when we are together as a people, Yishkon, then we will be able to settle Israel, we'll be able to live our lives. It's really critical. And if you look at all of the examples, when Yaakov blesses, Jacob blesses his sons, he says, hey, us will you come to come together? But it wasn't enough just to be in each other's physical presence. He said, the kapsu, you have to form a unifying movement, a bond with each other. And that is true as true today as it was then. Just a couple final questions. You've been so many places all over the world and met so many incredible leaders, visionaries. What's besides Israel, perhaps, your favorite place to visit, the most interesting place to visit, and who have been some of the most interesting or inspiring leaders or personalities that you've met along the way? So uh, inspiring and interesting are two different things. (laughs) I have met inspiring people. I've met leaders who who I frankly have developed close relations with in Morocco. I I like kings in particular, you know, it's good because they they get things done. I've met Putin, I've met other prime ministers in Russia and the leaders in China and leaders in many countries. And many of them are really, really good people. They operate under political pressures. But if you are able to peel away some of the toughest guys, the former KGB leader, Aliyev in Azerbaijan, with whom I developed a real bond and now with his son. And I mean, he was a really tough KGB leader there. I find humor is a great way to break the ice with a lot of them. But more than that, you know, I met Assad right before the fight. And I spent three hours with him in Damascus alone, just he and I. And the first hour, he was just probing to see did I know what I was talking about? By the second hour, he was telling the most intimate things. And we had an incredible discussion, much of which was had ramifications for what followed about a month later, and which I tried to tell President Obama, I told him, but not sure that it registered what was necessary because we could have prevented a lot of what happened if we understood his goal. And he told me then, before anything had happened, that if it ever comes here, what happened already in Egypt and Libya, he said, I will never leave. I will be here. I can't leave because I will get out. My family will get out but they'll massacre the Alawites, you know, his religious community. And he said, therefore, I, I will not be Mubarak or Gaddafi. And I told the president, we have to identify people we're now that you can work with because he's not going anywhere. 
I will tell you the people who influence me now, people like the Belzer Rebbe, whom I have great affection and I saw Rav Steinman only a few days ago again, 103, the most amazing man. I've had the Obamacher Rebbe, many people that I've had, religious leaders that I've had the opportunity to meet, to work with. And I will tell you political leaders, presidents of the United States, others who I've shared very intimate moments with and never wrote about it, never talked about it, and will not hear either. But, <laughs> but because that gives you credibility and develops relationship. And you see, the, uh, Scoop Jackson was certainly one of the great influences in my life, Senator Henry Jackson. A great friend of Israel and the Jewish people, but a great friend of mine, a mentor. There were others, uh, were closely Senator Javits when I came to New York, and governors with mayors, with political leaders of, of every stripe. And, and it's been very fortunate, you know, that people ask why I don't have more pictures of because I don't have room, but I don't do it to collect for my autobiography. I do it because every connection can benefit in some way the goals that we have and what we can achieve. And you can draw inspiration from just common people who've had incredible life stories. There's so many Holocaust survivors. Henry Ornstein, one of the people in my life, whose own story is so remarkable. And you can meet many people who, uh, my parents, who went through so much, were not, I, I wouldn't say, what's what, standing out in the, in the community. They did a lot. They were wonderful people. But you have to listen and learn from them. And I have. I, I've really been so fortunate, you know, the Soviet Jews I met in Russia, who a handful of people who stood against a prison that spanned two continents, who made Perestroika possible, who made Glasnost possible. The people who worked, the Israelis whom I saw, went with, go across the border into Syria to rescue Syrian children and bring them to hospitals in Israel. Now, incredible. It was freezing. You can't imagine. And yet they risked their lives. And one ambulance had these three hulking guys and they were returning them after treatment in Israel. 3,000 Syrians have already been treated in Israeli hospitals for free. And I said, aren't you concerned these guys are going to go back and ultimately fight you? And he said, most likely, but that's what Jews do. And I have seen the heroism of this kind of people putting their lives on the line constantly and regularly in order to defend not only Jews, but to reach out for non-Jews as well. And I think, and I've seen many non-Jews who, who have done remarkable things on behalf of the Jewish people. Just in closing, you mentioned earlier that you work these 18-hour days well into your career, uh, well, you know, when many others might be on the golf course or relaxed poolside in, in Florida. With that said, how have you managed to strike sort of a work-life balance, if there has been any? How have you managed to incorporate a family life? And are there any hobbies or passions or diversions that you indulge at any point? I would say, first of all, is because my wife understood what I was doing and really took care of my kids. We have four wonderful children, married, many grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren, and they all are continuing to be involved. I never wanted them or urged them to be involved in Jewish life, but they are all in different ways. They're all professionals. God blessed me with that. I think it's one of the brachot that he gave me. So I, I always try to balance it by being at least Shabbos at home, and that if kids know, people know they have an anchor in the week when you're there, Friday night, Shabbos. So that's one thing on the personal level. And I also live in a wonderful community. I didn't move to Manhattan because I wanted my family to have a support structure of friends and people because I'm away a lot. And what community is that? I live in Brooklyn in uh, Midwood, and Flatbush, generally identified, but it's <laughs> the other side. And we have a wonderful extended family that helps. But I, I will tell you, I am guilty. I feel guilt. That he didn't do enough, and that I, I hope my kids understand why 
while I wasn't there that it wasn't because I was trying to make money or I was doing other things. It's because of the passion I feel for this and my feeling that I could not allow a life, Jewish life to be endangered and often put that ahead of my own interests or more often than not. So there's always, you look back and you say, I could have done some things differently. And if you didn't, then you're lying to yourself. But overall, I can look back and, you know, God, after the days of creation said by Yartitov, he saw that it was good. So why does God, who's the height of perfection, have to compliment themselves? Say, hey, I did a good job. The answer is it was a message to us that sometimes you have to look back and say, you know, with all the problems, with all the negative, with all the challenges, you did good. And the Jewish community today can look back and say, we did good. We rescued Jewish communities that were written off to Jewish history. We made differences. We have a, a Jewish state. We see miracles today. Kibbutz Goliath, all the things, the gathering of the exiles that we can all look back with and say, you know, you all contributed to, all made a difference. And we have to then commit to the future generations that we will continue to do it. We will help them do it as well. It sounds like your children have very much absorbed the message. And it seems from your description, like they've got the memo. They understand that their father was engaged in life-changing work and that they in turn have contributed in their own ways to the Jewish community. It also gave them some opportunities to travel to different places. <laughs> there, were, there were some fringe benefits. There were some perks. And I'll tell you another thing that, you know, I have also this chus of something that happened to me where I got the opportunity to be on the John Basher show on ABC Network and on Nachum Siegel's show on Friday mornings for that for more than two decades and uh, the John Batcher show which is heard in 300 and some stations in the United States. Hundreds of thousands of podcasts are downloaded every hour we're on the air with him and I'm on Mondays and Thursdays with him. There's millions of people who listen. People in 90 countries hear the show. To think about what a privilege it is People say to me, you know, how much do you get paid for it? I said, how much do you think I would pay to get this kind of exposure for hours during the week across the whole United States and around the world? And many leading officials listen because they call me afterwards if they don't like something I say. <laughs> you hear about it. <laughs> but I know. And it kills every Thursday night of my life and half of Monday nights of my life. And Friday mornings, I have to be up early to Nachum's show. But you realize that what a difference you can make. It's such an important vehicle to do it. So I think that I'm honored and I have to continue to do it because regrets you will look back and say, you had a chance to do that and you didn't. But it's not just a show. It's many other things. Why am I doing this thing? Because I want to inspire. I want other people to know you can make a difference. You can do it. Everybody thinks the odds are against you. It's not true. And everybody has qualities that they can bring to bear on their work, whether they do it full time or whether they do it after time. Everybody can write a letter. Not everybody can do everything, but everybody can do something to change the world. What a fabulous message with which to end. And uh, thank you for the inspiring words. And may you have many years continuing to do something and to do everything you can for the Jewish people and for humanity at large. Thank you very much, Malcolm Honline. My pleasure. Thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.